Our Father, so much of uh, our lives as men, quite frankly, is fighting off fear because we have a lot of responsibilities and we have a lot of stuff on our plates. And Paul told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and of love and sound thinking. And, and fear is just a part of life, and fear doesn't go away when we become men. It's just not something we face as little boys. But all the way through life, there are fears. Uh, Paul talked about uh, fears within, conflicts without. It's just part of life. That's why so often, so often, so often in your word, you say to us, you say, fear not. Fear not. You have not given us a spirit of walking around wondering where we're going to get nailed next. Uh, we don't have to walk around kind of uh, bent over a little bit expecting the next blow. You don't want us to live like that. You want us to live confidently. You want us to come to you boldly. Uh, you're in front of us. You're to the side of us. You are behind us. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power. There's no power in the world like your power. Nothing can touch us without your permission. And, and if you allow something to touch us, ultimately it's for our good. So we don't have to fear anything. Perhaps some of us today had something come up that has caused us to, to fear a little bit. Because uh, now there's some uncertainty that wasn't there yesterday. But what power you have and what love you have for us. If you offered up your own son, why would you not freely give us all things? How much you love us. So we don't have to fear. And so much of fighting off fear is what Paul told to Timothy. You've given us a spirit of sound thinking, of sound judgment. When we get fearful, when we get a little panicky at times, and we don't talk about this a whole lot, but when it happens to us, uh, we just need to think soundly about who we are, more importantly, who you are, that you've got us covered. We're in your hand. The psalmist said, this I know, that God is for me. So wherever we are today, and whatever we are facing, we really are in a good spot. Because you are our sovereign Lord, you are our Father. Your eye is upon us, your hand is upon us. You are our sovereign keeper, and protector, and defender. So give us the courage, even when we face fear, to move ahead and be the men you've called us to be. Uh, we, we will, uh, we'll never get to a place, Lord, when we have a challenge where, where there's no fear. Uh, fear is just natural. Sometimes fear is demonic. But because of who you are and what you've done in our lives, we do not have to be paralyzed by fear. We just keep moving. We just keep following you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's in his great name we pray.
Amen. All right, one more time, let's turn to the book of Boaz, which does not exist, it gets me off the hook, but the book of Ruth does, and we are now in the chapter four of the book of Ruth. Interesting little book, you can read this book in about 10 minutes. There's a lot of stuff here, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, We've been introduced to this guy, Boaz, who is really the key player in the book of Ruth. Boaz ultimately is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz is functioning here uh, as what what the scripture calls a kinsman redeemer. He's going to uh, redeem two women from a life of desperation and futility and hardship. And uh, uh, as we have said, when you get to chapter one of this book, you find them in deep despair and disappointment. And then everything changes when Boaz shows up in chapter two. And it's quite a story. I think that Boaz is not only a picture of what Christ does for us, but I think he is a picture of biblical manhood and a picture of biblical masculinity. We touched on this last week because we are living in some interesting times. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and, and I'm, I'm sort of reviewing a little bit, but, but I want to camp on this because I, I do think we're in, well, we're in trouble in this nation. You look on just about every front, and there's trouble, and there's difficulty. Uh, the, the reason for that is, is quite simple. Uh, the further you get away from God and God's word, the more screwed up you're going to be. And the longer you deny the truth of God, and the longer you forsake the truth of God, uh, the greater the implications, the greater the consequences uh, in every aspect of society. Uh, as I mentioned last week, th- there, there is something that is going on right now in, in our culture that is, is relatively new in, in history. Uh, it, it would relate to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, whereas he's wrapping up that first letter to the Corinthians, he tells them to act like men and to be strong. We are actually living in an age where we have a younger generation of males uh, and Paul just could not say to them, act like men, because they don't know how men act. Now, that wasn't a problem for Paul when he wrote those words back in the first century. Act like men, be strong. <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of confusion over manhood. You, you know, uh, it's interesting to study history. We, we had a lot of great benefit come out of the Industrial Revolution. But there were also some negative things that came out of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, before the Industrial Revolution, you would have a family, you'd have a husband and father, and you would have children. The children would be raised primarily by the mother, boys and girls, up until the age of around six or seven. Right around seven, what would happen is that there would be a shift because at the age of seven, the boy would go to work with his father. Now, most men were farmers. You think about thousands of years of, of human history. Most men worked the land. 
So when a guy went to work, uh, he didn't get in a wagon and drive 30 miles to work. He, he would go 100 yards or 200 yards, he'd go work the land. And when his son hit seven, his son was old enough to go and work with his dad and be with his dad 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Or if the guy was a smith, blacksmith, coppersmith, silversmith, he would have a shop. Their living quarters, their home was attached to the shop, either behind it or to the side of it or above it. You've seen the old movies, right? Where the home and the shop were attached. So guys didn't have long commutes. Guys weren't gone all day. Um, very short commutes. You'd either walk into the field or you'd walk from run, one room into your shop and you'd be at work. But when your son hit seven, he'd go with you. And uh, for lack of a better term, you would mentor him, you would apprentice him, you would teach him a trade, you would teach him a craft, but more importantly, he would be with his father 12, 13, 14 hours a day. That's how it worked. Now, the mother and daughter, they also worked. Um, for a thousand years, people didn't go to Walmart. They didn't run down to the dry cleaners. They didn't do it. They did it all themselves. So everybody worked. Everybody worked out of the home. So the moms were with the daughters. The fathers were with the sons. That's how society worked. But it all changed with the Industrial Revolution because for the first time, something called factories were invented. And when factories were invented, you can read the article in the World Book Encyclopedia. Uh, I, I'd suggest you read the World Book Encyclopedia of 1964 or prior to 1964 before they got too much into revisionist history. But when you read the article in the World Book Encyclopedia on the Industrial Revolution, it talks about the benefits of the Industrial Revolution, and now we had all this technology and all this stuff and inventions, and you know, okay. But then there's a sentence that says this. It says, and serious social evils developed. Why did serious social evils develop? Well, because for the first time in thousands of years, in order to go to work, men had to go outside of the home and were absent from the home and were not there for their sons the way they had been for thousands of years for 12, 13, 14 hours a day. It was, it was a huge earthquake. It was a huge earthquake. And we are still feeling the effects to this day Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, act like men. That didn't used to be a problem. Guys knew what, boys saw what their dads did. They saw how men functioned. They saw how men acted. They saw how men behaved. They saw how men interacted with other men. They saw how men worked. They saw how men didn't work. They saw, um, they saw manhood. They saw masculinity watching their father and the male world in which he functioned. But it all changed with the Industrial Revolution because men were taken out of the home. Yeah, that was huge. It was huge. So here we are today, and we literally uh, have young men who are confused about what it means to be a man. And I mentioned the article in the New York Times that was out over the summer. Uh, about the number of young men who are postponing adulthood. Um, they are prolonging adolescence, and they are postponing adulthood. Now, what's interesting about all this is that 100 years ago, adolescence didn't exist. There was no such thing as adolescence. You went from being a boy to being a man. 
In the 1860s, after the Civil War, you had, 60, you had 15, 16, 17-year-old boys that would be on cattle drives that would round up cattle uh, in the briars and out of the creeks and assemble them, and they'd make their way a 1,000 miles north. There was no adolescence. Uh, there was no high school. Um, there was no part-time job. There was no college, there was no frat house, there was no getting drunk every weekend, acting like a fool. Uh, it's not how it worked. Uh, my maternal grandfather had to leave school when he was 12 because his father died. And when he was 12, he went to work in the oil fields in uh, Central California to support his mother and four sisters and brother who was handicapped. That's how it was. It's just what you did, you see. He didn't have any adolescence. He, one day he was a boy, his father died, next day he's a man, going to work. That's how it was for thousands of years, guys. So now we have this thing called adolescence, but now we've got guys who are trying to prolong adolescence and postpone adulthood. That's where we are. Um, I was talking to some young guys this week about this. And I was running some of this by them that we talked about last week. And they all started nodding their heads. Yep, yep, yep. I said, so here's what I'm seeing. There are five marks of adulthood. They say, yeah, what are they? I said, you, uh, number one, you complete your education. And a lot of guys don't do that. But one of the marks of transitioning from adolescence to adulthood is you finish your education. Number two, you leave home. Number three, you're financially independent. Number four, you're married. Number five, you have kids. It's amazing how that's being postponed. 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 Why is that? Well, I think it's because that younger generation was not handed a map by the older generation. They should have been given a map. Here's what manhood looks like, and here's what men do. Now, I bring all that up because I like Boaz, because Boaz demonstrates Christian manhood. And, and, and we need a return to biblical manhood in our day and age. And those of us who are older have a responsibility to teach the younger men how to act like men and what it is that a man looks like. We talked last week about uh, the fact that we, we, we now have so many men who are feminized, F-E-M-I-N-I-Z-E-D, feminized, that's not being effeminate, it's not a propensity towards homosexuality. A feminized man is just a man that has been primarily raised by women. There's an absence of male figures in his life. And there are three things we ought to say about feminization, and I'm kind of reviewing last week, but the reason I'm reviewing is this stuff is really important, and it's where we are. And we are men. And I don't care where you are in life. You may be retired. You may say, well, I can't do what I used to do. You could, you could still have an influence on a younger man. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in life, you can have an influence on a younger man who needs to see what biblical manhood is. Uh, when we talk about feminization, three observations about it. Feminization... Uh, can be detected. 
Secondly, it can be avoided. Number three, feminization can be reversed. There are some marks of feminization. As I said last week, to a degree, we have all uh, been feminized, but the closer you move to Christ, the more you grow in the Scriptures, uh, the more biblically masculine you become, you see. Now, what's interesting, a lot of churches have been feminized. Um, let, me, let me stay on track. There are some traits of feminization. You guys still with me? Because I don't want to bore you. There are some traits of feminization. Men who are primarily raised by women. And is it not true, is it not true that when you were in elementary school, you pretty much were taught by women? Yeah. Not a lot of guys teach elementary school. So right there, six, seven, eight hours a day, you're with women who, you know, well-intentioned, I'm sure, and all that, and want to do the job, that's great. Women don't always understand young boys because they never were young boys. They understand little girls. But it's hard, and it's harder for a guy to understand a little girl because you weren't a little girl. It's harder for a woman to understand a little boy because she was never a little boy, obviously. Here's what can happen when, uh, when, when a, a young boy is raised primarily in the presence of women, there are some traits. Number one, uh, he will be a man who will always need the approval of the group. It will be hard for him to stand alone. Because you see, he's very relationally aware and he's very concerned about how others feel about him. All right? So a guy who's feminized, he desperately needs the approval of the group, therefore it's hard for him to stand alone. And sometimes as a man, you've got to stand alone. You've got to stand on a principle. Secondly, uh, a feminized guy is someone who can be easily manipulated by women's emotions. So when you get married, you see that can happen to you. Because if there's a principle and there's an emotional response, it's hard for you to stay on principle because you want to be connected and all that. But sometimes you see the thing to do is to lead and stay on the principle, attempting to understand your wife and be sensitive to her, but if there's a principle at stake, sometimes someone has to lead. Now, I'm not going to go much further on that because I don't want to get into a lot of trouble because I care about the approval of the group. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Does my dress look all right? Okay, good. Nice slip showing? Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Uh, uh, here's a third trait of feminized men. They, they do not initiate when they are the proper person to do so. They are passive. Okay? Number four, uh, feminized men prefer the company of women over men. They're more comfortable because they were raised among women, primarily. Okay? Now, if you're starting to get a little nervous, remember this. Remember this. Feminization can be reversed. This is why I'm going over this with a bunch of guys. Because you see, well, Steve, I can't recognize me there. I recognize me. We've all been here. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you can bench press. You see? It's just, it, it's not your fault. It's just how we're raised. We have departed from God's plan for the family. When fathers are absent, 
When fathers divorce, when fathers leave, when fathers abandon, you have violated God's plan, and there are going to be consequences. Are there not? You bet there are. I mean, you've seen the statistics on guys in prison. Uh, how many of them have healthy relationships with their fathers? A minuscule amount. The vast majority of those guys have no relationship, may not even know who their dad is at best, or at best were abused. It's not, a, it's not the way it was supposed to be. Uh, here's, a, uh, here's, a, here's a fifth one. Uh, guys who are feminized uh, are very hesitant to ever take risk. Why is that? Because they don't want to get hurt. You take a risk, you might get hurt. And when you're raised by women, the, you are often instilled with a fear of getting hurt. You see? Okay. Uh, here's another one. Don't risk was five. Number six is feminized men uh, are very hesitant to confront. Because once again, they want the approval of the group. They want everybody to get along. Okay. Now, again, let me underscore, this can be reversed. Okay? Now, I'm setting up Boaz. And, and I'm going to read you one more deal on this feminization stuff. Because, and, and, and the reason I'm doing it is, it really sets up chapter 4 of the book of Boaz, which we know to be the book of Ruth. Okay? I'm just setting up chapter 4 because I'm giving you this stuff because as we go into 4, I want you to see how a biblical man of God operates. And when a, when a man who is under the authority of the living God and under the headship of the living God and is in submission to the living God. See, so often we hear in Christian churches that submission is for women. Submission is for Christians, not just women. Submission is for men. The best leaders I have ever been around are great submitters. Before you can be a leader in authority, you must demonstrate a propensity to be able to submit to authority. And the ultimate authority is God. And we're going to see this guy, Boaz. I love this guy. We're going to see this guy, Boaz, as he operates as a man ought to operate, and the benefit and the blessing and the contribution he makes to those around him who are in need. He literally becomes a redeemer. Christ is the ultimate redeemer, but he wants to do such a work in your heart and in my heart that we become men who also can redeem as we are in submission to him. Is this making sense? Yes, it does. So, with that in mind, I read a section from Stephen Clark's book, which is out of print. It's a travesty, but you can get it online if you look it up. The book is called Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen Clark, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And after talking about feminization, and much of what I just said about feminization comes out of his original work done in 1980. He has a page and a half. I want to highlight it for you. Okay? Let's take a vote. How many of you guys are in favor of this? Good. We just passed it. All right. That's called a benevolent dictatorship. Okay. 
section is called Social Responsibility and Aggressiveness. I like that. Two crucial areas in the character formation of men must be dealt with successfully if men are to be effectively formed in manly Christian character. These areas are of great importance both in raising young boys to be Christian men and in raising new Christians, young and old men alike, to Christian maturity. The first and primary area is that of training men to take social responsibility. That may surprise you. But I would submit to you, this is precisely what Boaz did in Ruth chapter 4. He took social responsibility. Okay. Men have a natural tendency to avoid social responsibility and instead follow one of two other directions. Either they will tend to follow the course of self-aggrandizement and pleasure-seeking, it's all about me, or if they are feminized or at least cowed by women in social situations, they will tend to withdraw and take responsibility only in the areas which they stake out for themselves as being those where they will achieve. Then he says this, Men assume social responsibility most naturally and effectively when, number one, it is clear to them that the primary responsibility for the well-being of others rests on them and that others are relying on them. That is a great thing. Um, what's that poem, No Man is an Island? No Man is an Island. But if you want to say I'm an island, then there ought to be people all over your island crawling all over you of whom you're responsible for, that you're supposed to look out for. The, the, the father in a home, the husband and father in a home is to be the shepherd of that family. Uh, somebody, I think it was Josh Billings, said that every family is a small civilization. Every family. Uh, every family is a small nation. And... If you're a husband, if you're a father, you have those around you uh, for whom you are responsible. So he says, men assume social responsibility most naturally and effectively when it is clear to them that the primary responsibility for the well-being of others rests on them and that others are relying on them. Some of you guys are married to women who are easy to live with. They are. Not that they're perfect or, you know, they have strengths, weaknesses just as you do. But some of you guys have wives that are just, you know, it just works. It just works. You fit, you know, it's, it's a good marriage. Some of you guys don't have that. Some of you guys have wives that are difficult to live with. Proverbs talks about the contentious woman. You got a contentious woman? It's like, it's like living with a dripping faucet. That's in the Bible. And that's what some of you guys have. And you've been living that way a long time. So what are you going to do? I suggest you divorce her and get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They put that out. Steve Ferrar said divorce her and get out. <laughs> then I'll have my attorney call your attorney. Yeah. Now, that's not what we should do as Christian men, is it? No. Because, see, there's more than just your own happiness, isn't there? There's more at stake. You have kids? What about their happiness? You say, it's really bad. It's really bad between us. I don't think the kids ought to see us fight that much. 
Better you stay together and fight than break up and fight. As, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I, I'm just saying, guys, I, I, I'm just saying, as men, as husbands and fathers, we have those for whom we are responsible, and it's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about our happiness. We are there to serve, and we're there to take the hits, and we are there to take the shots. That's our job. We're men. Uh, there's a second area where men assume social responsibility most naturally and effectively. Number two, it's when they've been trained from an early age by the men in their lives to recognize and assume that responsibility faithfully. Uh, I'm grateful that I was raised by a strong man with uh, strong men in our extended family. I'm very grateful for that. I, I, I'm grateful that when I was a little boy, I knew my dad. Um, I'll tell you what, my dad threw us, I was the oldest of three boys. My dad threw us, I, I wish, man, and when I get to heaven, I want to find out how many passes he threw us over the years. We get out in the street, we get in the backyard, and we play this game called interception. One of us would hike the ball on my dad, one of us would uh, be the receiver, and one of us was the defensive back. And uh, he taught us how to run patterns. He taught us, you know. And, I mean, for hours, he threw us the ball. He just threw us the ball. It was, it was a great time. I have such fond memories. Of it. I remember playing football in the living room when we were little guys. I remember watching the American Football League when it first came on. Nobody watched the American Football League. We'd watch it. My dad would lay on the floor like this and watch it. And then during the commercials, we'd wrestle. It's great to wrestle with your dad. My dad was big. My dad had massive hands. But see, we'd wrestle, in it, but he never hurt us. And you know, even there, he was teaching us by how he played with us. There are limits on masculinity. Did my dad have power? Yeah, but my dad had power over his power. My dad never used his physical power in a wrong way. See, I learned from him how a man uses his strength. You never hit a woman. You don't do it. I don't care what she said. I don't care what she does. You don't hit her. You just don't do it. So my kids were over the other night. We were messing around, and John and Josh, and I kind of gave John a shot, and then he came after me, and then Rachel said, don't do that, Dad, and she's 31, and she came after me just playing around. So I cold cocked her. <laughs> she was fine after a few minutes. Did I do that? No, just like we used to do. She'd come up, and then I just grabbed her wrist and just smiled at her. And, you know, it was fun. Just fun. I wouldn't hurt her. You see? But some guys do hurt their girls, don't they? That's not masculinity. See, you should learn from your father how to be socially responsible. See, men that abuse women are not socially responsible, are they? No? Okay. Okay, and there's a lot more I'd like to say here, and I really don't have time. Um, I'll read one section to you. The key factor in forming manly character is the right social structure. The most important of these relationships is normally that between a father and a son. A young man should instinctively identify with his father and model himself after him. 
the father-son relationship is good, if the father is not indifferent to and distant from his son, and if he is not brutal or cruel towards him, the son will receive a great deal of his personal confidence and his identity as a young man from his relationship with his father. Now, if you don't have that, then what do you do? Well, you've got to find other Christian men that can model that and demonstrate it for you. You see, this is really critical stuff. When a father is harsh and brutal with a son, it can, it can uh, veer the son towards homosexuality. When a father is, uh, is passive and uh, uh, out of touch and uninvolved and the mother is dominant, that can move a guy towards homosexuality. See, there is a health that needs to be in relationships in a Christian home. You say, I didn't have that growing up. Well, you know, every family's flawed. Every, problem, every family has its difficulties. But what is important as men is that we're moving close to Christ and moving close to the Scriptures and applying what we see in the Word of God. You see? So you, you, your marriage is difficult and all that. As your kids get older, they're going to realize there are difficulties and they're going to watch and see how you handle the difficulties. Are you divorced and your wife always puts you down and saying this to the kids when they're not with you and all this and you don't know what she's saying? You know what? Don't return evil for evil. Because those kids are going to grow up and they're going to figure out as they get older what's going on. They're going to figure out the truth. So you be a man of God. Now I'm going to put this away and we're going to go to Ruth chapter 4. We'll be here all night. I, I, I love Boaz because he's a redeemer. And he shows, he is the antithesis and the opposite of everything we've been talking about. One last note from last week. I mentioned Derek Kidner in his book, in his commentary on Proverbs from 1964. Uh, when you read Proverbs, you come across a kind of man who is called in Proverbs, he's called a sluggard. And there are three characteristics of a sluggard. Number one, he will not start anything. Number two, he will not finish anything. Number three, he will not face anything. I would submit to you this younger generation who have not been given the map of masculinity, they will not start anything, they will not finish anything, they will not face anything, generally speaking. And thank the Lord there are exceptions to the rule. So we're in a crisis. So let's go to Ruth 4 and see what a real man does. As we look at Boaz, here's what you're going to see in Ruth chapter 4. We're going to find that he will face something. We're going to find, that's number one, we're going to find number two, that he is going to start something. And number three, we're going to find that he's going to finish something. The antithesis of the sluggard. He's going to face a problem. He's going to start reconciling the problem. And three, he's going to finish the problem and get it to closure. And it's all going to happen in this chapter 4. Now, what has happened in chapter 3 is that Ruth has indicated to him, yes, I am willing for you to be my kinsman redeemer. We went over that all last week. I can't go back and review all of it. But she gave him the signals, yes, I would like you to be my kinsman redeemer. Yes, I would like you to redeem me and be my husband. And based on the law, and we said last week that it was a different time, it was a different culture, it was a different custom, this is not how we do it today. But they had certain ways of doing things. So immediately on the heels of this encounter with her, on that significant evening, the next morning, he faces the situation. 
And he's going to start something, and he's going to finish it. So we read in chapter 4 of Ruth. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. I mean, this is immediate. He went through the drive-thru at McDonald's, got his Egg McMuffin and coffee, and he went to the gate. Why did he go to the gate? Every city in Israel had a gate. The gate is where everything happened. The gate was uh, the town square. The gate was where they came in and they went out. The gate was where they had the, uh, the courts. Well, they didn't have courts, but they had elders. The gate was where they had the legal business transacted. The gates were where they sold and uh, bought livestock. The gates were, it's just where everything happened, was the gates of the city. Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. It's kind of a coincidence, isn't it? It was providential. Because you see, what he had told Ruth when she indicated, I would like you to be my kinsman redeemer, he immediately told her, but there is a relative closer than I. You see, I cannot redeem you until I first approach him and talk with him to see if he wants to redeem you. This is how things were constructed in Israel back then. I have to go to there's a relative closer than I. He has the first option. So I must talk with him to see, indeed, if he wants to redeem you, because if he doesn't, then I am able to redeem you. This is what this is all about. He goes to the gate, and here comes that close relative. The guy just happens to be passing by. It was providential. And Boaz spoke and said to him, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. What I want you to note here, just based on what we've been talking about, is that Boaz wasn't passive. Ruth indicates her interest. Ruth opens her heart, uh, indicates her trust in him. And, And I want you to note that with Boaz here, he, he doesn't say, well, I need a few months because I'm not sure I'm ready to commit. I, I just got a new video game. You don't see the hesitation there. Now, I'm not saying we don't think things through. But, but what you see here, and they had had some time together. They had some time together. We indicated that the arrangement here in uh, Ruth chapter 3, although it's unusual to us, it was not sexual. It fit their pattern of things. There was honor here. Uh, They weren't sexually involved. The problem, see, in our culture, uh, young people get sexually involved, sleep together before marriage. When uh, my daughter, who was married last month, what was Mary telling me? They went to get manicures or something, and the gal who was doing the manicure uh, was asking, uh, I don't know, something, and uh, when's the wedding, da, 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 and um, well, where are you guys living? And Rachel said, well, I, my lease was up, so I moved in at my folks' house. And she said, you what? And Rachel said, I, 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 I'm at my folks' house for the next two weeks till we get married. And this gal was shocked. She said, you're not living together? And Rachel said, no. And that, and that gal thought that was so strange. Because it's so normal in our culture that you live together before you have your $100,000 wedding. Which I didn't pay $100,000 for the wedding. Um, You see, it's all about the wedding. It's all about the wedding. It's all about the... No, it's about life. 
well, why aren't you living together? Because it's wrong. Yeah, but we live in a culture where there is no right and wrong. You know, this is the Word of God, you see. How to get off on that? Uh, oh, oh, there was nothing sexual here. In, 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 uh, here's what I'm saying. It had been two months since they had met. That's not a long time, but it was time enough, because he was an older guy, it was time enough that they got to know one another's character. They really got to know each other. What makes this person tick? What's their character? Can they be trusted? What do I see here? What are the character traits? Not just are we sexually compatible. You know the old line, well, I need to sleep with you to find out if we're sexually compatible. A lot of guys use that line. Well, hey, you, you want to know if you're sexually compatible? Listen, if she's a female and you're a male, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> I've had young gals tell me that. Well, this guy, young gals at a Christian school, so this guy, you know, he said he needs to sleep with me. And I said, well, you know what? That's not your guy. I said, can I give you the straight scoop on that guy? He doesn't want to know if you're sexually compatible. He wants to have an orgasm with you and use you. That's what he wants to do with you. Now, nobody else will tell you that, but I'll tell you that. That's what he wants. Don't give it to him. And I'll tell you right now, he's not your guy, because if he was, he wouldn't be asking you to do that. It's not the kind of man you need. He says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. It took, it took ten Jewish men to start a synagogue. It took ten Jewish men to witness at a wedding. Here you have ten men at the, at the gate, the elders of the city. He says, sit down here. So they sat down. Obviously, he was comfortable in the presence of men. Then he said to his closest relative, Naomi, he gets right to it. He gets right to it. Now here's the deal. Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. That was her husband who had died. And if you remember chapter 1, when the famine hit Bethlehem 10 years prior, he thought he could outrun the difficulty. He thought he could do all his financial planning, do all his investments offshore. He goes to Moab dies there, the two sons die, so you got three widows, one widow remains in Moab, now you got Ruth and Naomi coming back. And see, this is not just family, it's extended family, families looked out for each other, that's this whole principle, and this is where the guy is saying to the closest relative, Naomi, he knew Naomi, and he knew Elimelech, Naomi who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. She obviously didn't have the capital to get the seed to invest in the land. She had to put it up for sale. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, how do you think he felt at that moment? Hmm, is right. Because you know what? He had a desire in his heart to marry Ruth. And if you will, that was a dream that just died. Sometimes dreams die. But oftentimes, God takes dreams that have died and God resurrects dreams. 
You never know when God's going to resurrect a dream. You just never know. You just never know what God's going to do. Oh, it's too late for that. You just never know. You just never know when God's going to show up and do something completely out of the blue that you never saw coming. That's the way baseball go. That's just what he do. My friend Gary Randall, great man of God, big guy, about 6'8", he's played basketball at TCU. Uh, Gary has a ministry called Hope Farms in uh, Fort Worth to young boys, young black boys, in the inner city of Fort Worth. They won't take a boy past the age of eight. It's too late. They take young boys, little boys, teach them, train them, educate them. Gary and Noble Crawford, strong, godly African-American men, they take these little boys and they train them. Older men are teaching the younger men. And I, I love Gary Randall. Because whenever you talk to Gary, he just, um, it used to be said of C.H. Spurgeon that if you cut him, he would bleed Bible. That's Gary Randall. And Gary's always got a verse. He's always quoting scripture. And he, I was talking to him one time, and he was telling me about how God had done something great for the ministry at Hope Farm, and just, just out of nowhere. And it was remarkable. And we were just, you know, amazed by the grace of God. And he said, you know, Steve, what my grandma used to tell me? She was the daughter of slaves. When God would do something remarkable, my grandma would say, you know, Gary, that's just what God do. Now, she didn't have the greatest grammar, but she had a tremendous heart and a tremendous understanding of the, of the character of God. That's just what he do. And it is just what he do. And you never know when he's going to do it, do you? Okay. So his dreams just died when the guy says, yeah, I'll redeem the land. Now watch this. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, oh, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Huh. See, it's just not the land, but if you get the land, because of the Leverite law, which originally was if a woman is widowed, the brother of the husband must marry, must cohabit with her, so she can have a male heir who can then grow up and support her. That's how they did it back then. And it obviously at this time was extended past the male brother. So he, you know, the land, the guy says, oh yeah, I'm in. I'm in on the land. Well, hold on. But if you, if you redeem the land, you've got to acquire Ruth. Well, watch this. This changes everything. Uh, the closest relative says, well, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Why wouldn't this guy redeem it? I don't know. Nobody knows. He doesn't say. It could be that he had wife, children already. If he has a child by Ruth, that child would not only become heir of the land that he buys, but he would become heir also of his inheritance in his land. It just got complicated financially, and he says, well, I'm out. I'm out. I give the right of redemption to you. Verse 7. By the way, you remember when you bought your first house? Wasn't that something? You buy your house, you go into closing, you don't know what's happening. All you're doing, you're just signing papers. You're there for 12 hours signing papers. You don't have, no, you don't have a clue what you're signing. You're just signing papers. 
And then you shake hands, and that mortgage broker takes off a shoe and hands it to you and says, God bless you. That's not quite how it happened. That's how they did it back then. See, when you sign those papers and they shook hands, then they hand you the keys. That's how we do it. Notice how they do it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel. I'm in verse 7. Concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. Uh, perhaps this comes from what they would do when they would survey land. They would walk the land, every square foot of it, and if you were transferring land or redeeming land, you would take off the sandal which had walked the land and give it in exchange. So it was done publicly in front of the tent. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. Verse 8, so the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, his sons. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, Leverite law, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Who were Rachel and Leah? They were the two women from whom the nation of Israel was built. You had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah, along with their two handmaidens, Bilhal and Zilpal, came the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons and the daughter Diana. So literally out of Rachel and Leah came, by the way, and the land was distributed among the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob and these women. So those women built the nation of Israel, and the land was distributed to their sons. In other words, these women were fruitful. And may God bless you and Ruth with fruitfulness. Now, I'm watching my time. <clears throat> Let me make an observation here, if you guys are still with me. And there, there's all kinds of stuff in here about masculinity. There's all kinds of stuff. But I want to point something out to you. By redeeming the land and by redeeming Ruth, Boaz is being socially responsible. He is taking a woman who is a young widow, who has no means of support, who is on her own. By the way, he not only is taking Ruth, he is taking on Naomi, her mother-in-law. What he is doing by redeeming her is that he is becoming a socially responsible man who pledges through marriage to provide and to risk and to put a shelter over her life and to save her from a life of being destitute and penniless and to provide for her. Now, that involves risk. It involves risk. You know why it involves risk? And you say, well, back earlier it says he was a wealthy landowner. Yeah, he was. But 10 years before, they were in the middle of a drought. And he was a landowner, but he wasn't wealthy that year when there was a drought because there was no rain and they didn't do irrigation. He said, well, oh my gosh, oh, wait a minute. If I take on Rachel, then I also have to take on the mother-in-law and provide for her? Yeah, you do. 
well, gosh, I mean, the economy's not doing real well. I mean, my, my gosh, what if my business turns? What if it goes up? Well, that's a risk. It was the right thing to do. See, if it's the right thing to do, you go ahead and risk, and you trust God, and you trust in God's promises. Just because the economy's bad doesn't mean you don't trust God. The promises, are tr- the promises are true when the economy's good. The promises are true when the economy's bad. Ultimately, your trust is in the living God and what he has promised to do. This guy was not averse to taking risk. Did he think it through? Yeah. Did he want to take it? Yeah. Was he the... Did, it all made sense. Did he know how it was going to turn out? Did he have, you know, enough money in the bank for the next 20 years? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. That's not the issue. The issue is where's your trust? He helped her in the field. He was gracious to her in the field. Uh, the Bible says he who, uh, he who lends to the poor gives to the Lord. The, the Lord notes this. The Lord sees this. Our, 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 you can never insulate yourself from difficulty in the future. So what do you do? Go ahead and do what's right. Lord sees your heart. The Lord sees your circumstances. The Lord can return things to you. George Mueller used to say, God is my banker. Who's your banker? Isn't it better to let God be your banker? To let God oversee it? You see? Uh, Boaz was socially responsible. He rescued two women in desperate straits. Can I say this to you about the Lord Jesus Christ? When the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and suffered under Pontius Pilate and gave himself up as a ransom for many, Jesus didn't do what was best for him. Jesus did what was best for us. May I say this to you? When Jesus came and went to the cross, Jesus, and I say this reverently, Jesus was socially responsible. He saved us. He redeemed us. We could not save ourselves. He saved a group of people. He redeemed a group of people. That's us. That's you. That's me. He did not do what was best for him. He did what was best for us. That's what redeemers do. And, 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 and we're in the process, the Scripture tells us, we're in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. Uh, we have all been selfish men. As we grow in Christ, self drops off. And we are transformed slowly, gradually. We are transformed from selfish men into servant men. We're not in it for ourselves. We're not in it for what's best for us. We're not in it to get to the top. We're in it to serve. That's, that's the essence of being a Christian man. That's the essence of being a Christian leader. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus humbling himself, coming from heaven to earth to be the Savior. And then it says this, Have this same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. Flip over real quick, if you would, to Titus 2, since I have four minutes and 32 seconds left. I love that new screen back there. Titus chapter 2. I think of Titus. You know what I think of? I think of Grandpa Titus. Uh, 
How did that work? My grandma had, was one of 13 kids. And one of her cousins married, one of her cousin Juanita, who's now 90-something, married Don Titus, big guy about 6'6", who worked on the railroads. And we all lived in the same area. And I remember one year we all had Thanksgiving together. My family uh, and Nan's family, who were the Coxes and the Browns, we had dinner with the Tituses. I was probably six or seven years old. And I can remember Thanksgiving, and I can remember Grandpa Titus. He's about six, seven. This, this guy was big. And they had land in Watsonville. Uh, they grow a lot of uh, grapes in Watsonville now. Not Thompson Seedless. You know, the, the Chardonnay stuff. It's high-value land. Back then, it was just land. They worked the land. And one of his sons had an auto shop out on the highway. And, you know, they're just... They're just folks, well, not a whole lot, but, and I remember, and I remember it was Thanksgiving, and I remember Grandpa Titus, he had his black suit on, and uh, it was time to pray for Thanksgiving meal, and Grandpa Titus got up there, and I'm just looking at him. My dad was big, but Grandpa Titus was bigger. He had these big hands, big calluses, you know, and Grandpa Titus got up there, and he started praying, and he started praying, and he started praying. I remember thinking, man, you know, those mashed potatoes are getting cold. Because <laughs> Grandpa Titus, he was serious about praying. <laughs> I remember another time being in a restaurant, we had a family deal, and one of my uncles was asked to pray in the restaurant. That was a big mistake. Because, see, my, that great uncle of mine, he didn't come to Christ until he was like 75. And he, and, but, but he loved Jesus because Jesus had saved him. So they asked my great uncle to get up and pray, uh, to pray. So what does he do? He stands up in a restaurant. And he's got this big booming voice. And he didn't bow his head and say, He got me. He's our Father in heaven. We come to you in the name of Jesus. Everybody around the restaurant, you know. Yeah. We thank you for the blood of Christ that has saved us from our sin. I mean, he just starts praying and preaching. Right? He didn't care. He didn't give a rip. You know why he didn't give a rip? He figured there was some guy sitting out there that was just like he was before Christ came into his life. Now, I'm not saying that's what you do all the time, but I'm saying he didn't need the approval of the group. I am saying that. I'm grateful for strong men that I saw. And they really didn't care as long as they were honoring Christ. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to please him. And they really didn't give a rip about anything else. We make it our ambition, whether in the body or out of the body, to please him. So I see Titus here, and I got thinking about that. Uh, look at Titus 2, verse 2. Older men. Uh... You know, every guy in here is an older man. I don't care if you're 19, because there's some guy who's 18. You remember being uh, junior high school and looking up to the guys in high school on the football team? You remember when you were in junior high and seeing the guys who were 18 and you couldn't believe how old they were? Well, they're just young guys. See, if you're 18, there's some guy who's six, there's some guy who's 12 who's looking up to you. We're all older guys. Older men are to be temperate. That means sober. 
They're to be dignified. That means serious about life. That means you have gravitas. You get your feet on the ground. They're to be sensible. That means you're a sound thinker and you've got your life under control. You're sound in faith and love and perseverance. You stick with it. You finish what you start. Okay. That's what older men are to be. Then jump down to verse uh, 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be sensible. Who's to urge the younger men? The older guys. But see, it's kind of difficult to urge a younger man to be sensible, to be serious about life, if the older guy is not serious about life. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Dignified. Well, that word was up there in verse 2 for the older guys. See, the thing is, older men are to demonstrate to younger men certain characteristics so that the younger men, as they follow Christ, adopt those same characteristics they saw in the older guys because they want to become mature men in Christ just like those older guys. In other words, I want to become like Grandpa Titus. You see, I want to become like my dad. That's how it's supposed to be. I want to be a man like that guy. Like that guy. I want to be like him. Okay. I got four zeros back there. They don't mean anything. <laughs> Can I give you four principles just to think about? Just think about them. You might pray about them. Just, just kick them around. Actually, they're not four, they're five. Here's number one. Find a young man. It might be a son. It might be a grandson. <clears throat> and just simply spend time. Spend time. That's it. You just spend time. I see, you're going to have to work at this because we're post-industrial revolution wasn't an issue before the Industrial Revolution because you were with them all the time. But now you're going to have to look for ways to spend time. Does it mean you always have a Bible study together? I wouldn't do that because you'll turn them off. You need to just live life with them. Just live life and just hang out with them. There ought to be some young guy, there ought to be some young man you're spending time with. Okay. And just, hey, just see where it goes. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't he take some young guys and spend time with them? Yeah, he did. Here's number two. And if you're a father, if you're a husband, if you're a grandfather, kick this around. Create an environment that is safe and secure and not critical. Don't always be riding them. Don't always be on their case. Encourage them. Tell them what they're good at. When they fail, tell them how you failed. Just be real. But you make sure that environment in your home or whatever it is, it's safe, it's secure. In other words, hey, there's grace. Here's number three. Be quick to forgive their failures. Quick. That's called grace. That's called mercy. Isn't that how we've been forgiven? See, that, 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 that's how we ought to be with the younger guys. Are they going to fail? Oh, man, are they going to fail? Are they going to screw up? Yeah. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe, my God, how stupid could you? I, hey, hey, shut up. 
What about you? What about me? So what do you do when you see a broken heart? You just, you just, you just hug on them and you say, it's all right, man. It's all right. I'm for you. And you know what? God's for you. A broken and contrite heart he won't despise. So don't you despise him. Okay? Don't you wish your dad had done this for you? Yeah, you do. If he didn't, see, well, my dad didn't do that for me. All right, then you start doing it. Okay? Hey, guys, we can do this stuff. We can do it. Here's number four. Model the truth. Just model the truth. Oh, and be honest when you don't. If you say damn on the way to church and you're not crossing over Grapevine Lake, <laughs> you might want to square that, especially if you don't want your kids to say damn. You get what I'm saying there? Model the truth, and when you screw up, admit it. Admit it. Corey, and don't excuse it. Corey Tim Boom once said, the blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. Be honest. Number five. This is three quick shots. Uh, have fun. Share stories, including your failures. Have fun. Skip Bible study. Go to the Rangers game. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Um, Tell them stories about your life. Oh, and include your failures. Because see, then the bar is not raised too high. See, my dad received grace. My grandpa received grace. This is what men are supposed to do. Oh, and by the way, if you do this, can I tell you something? It's just another way of saying you're a kinsman redeemer and you're socially responsible. God wants our families to work. We all got our stuff, but he wants to fix our stuff. That's what he wants to do. And isn't it sweet when he does it? It's the greatest thing in the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we call you Father. Not a guy in here who's a perfect father. Not a guy in here who had a perfect father. Not a guy in here who will be a perfect father. So we turn to you. How grateful we are that you are our father. You sent your son to be our kinsman redeemer. You've given us a climate that is safe and secure. You could rip us up with criticism. But Lord, you... Um, you don't keep bringing up our past sins and iniquities. In fact, you not only forgive our sin, you forget our sin. There's something so healthy about a masculine man who's following Christ. Anyone around him is blessed. It's being salt. It's being light. Encourage us, encourage us, Lord, to keep walking that path. We've been given so much.
may we in turn give to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.